0: Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created emergingmanagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O. Dot org slash global dash investor. The Matimico team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegis. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegus has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So If you're tired of high-cost and time-consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at Tegas.co forward slash valuehive. That's Tegas.co forward slash valuehive. And As a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by SP Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. Value Hive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash Hive. That's T I K R.com forward slash Hive. All right, Cuppy. It's been a while since we've chatted over. Like video or podcast, uh, we text back and forth. But this is the first time in a while that we've that we've communicated over the podcast. I'm excited. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, a new position of yours. We actually bought it as well. Um, Joy Energy. Um, so we own it. Uh, Cuppy owns it. Do your own research. This is an investment advice. Um, and uh, we're gonna get into just kind of the whole energy space as well. But before we do all of that, Cuppy you're turning into a bit of a freelance farmer i think uh so why don't we discuss your little endeavors there and uh buying some farmland in uh npr
1: in well let me preface this by saying it's uh you know farmland light uh there is a cow um but in reality i bought some land near my house because i wanted to stay as rainforest and it's really pretty to look at and uh, there's something of a building boom going on here in Puerto Rico, and it'd be a shame if they they, they turn it into a subdivision. So that's the main reason why I bought it. There, there is a cow there. There's some uh, mango trees. Uh, I'm really hopeful that I can plant more fruit trees uh, in, in my backyard. I've been planting fruit trees like a lunatic. Uh, you know, uh, I'm ready for the great reset. I'm not going to do it without papayas and you know <laughs> mangoes and everything else you can imagine. Uh, you know if, if if it grows here in Puerto Rico, I'm gonna grow some of it.
0: Now this cow, is it, you know, was it just, did it stumble upon the property and you just so happened to find one while you bought it? Or was that no, like part of the deal? Uh, When I went
1: to visit it with the realtor, there was a, an uh, older Puerto Rican guy. And he said, uh, I, I've been uh, grazing my cow here. And I said, there's a cow here. And he said, yeah, we c- I can't find it though because it's rainforest. <laughs> But uh, he made this fencing up, and he said that at some point uh, many years ago, they, he used to have multiple cows there. And uh, I guess there's one left. <laughs> so I, I, there's one cow somewhere uh, in this rainforest. <laughs> and, you know, so I guess I'm going to own a ranch. Uh, but uh, no, this is um, it, it's really just about keeping the area as a green space. And uh, the, the, there's, uh, you know, a bit of open area. It's, it's kind of grassland where the cow should have been, but it wasn't and I'm going to plant some fruit trees there. Um, I just want to have more, and I will put a vegetable garden up on my roof uh, with with an irrigation timer, and I'm pretty surprised that uh, it's produced tomatoes. I was gone for six weeks, and the irrigation timer kicked in every day, which kind of surprised me. I assumed my tomato uh, tree would be dead by now, but no, I'm I'm growing tomatoes, and we branched out into basil, and hopefully we can branch out into many things. I, I, I just keep Every day after work, I stop at a garden store, pick up a couple trees and plant them. So in five years, I'll tell you if it's working.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember last year I did, we went to Home Depot and my wife and I like spur the moment. We were like, let's start a garden. And we just bought some like random ass tomato plants and things, didn't do raised beds, just like stuck them in some old pots and stuck them outside and they failed miserably. So this this summer, we're gonna go round two and actually do some raised beds, put some work into it. but yeah, I mean, it's 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 funny because we've got you know on my on my mom's side we've got a family farm um in our in our you know kind of lineage, um that's got a bunch of cattle and stuff. And so you know when I when I read that you bought some farmland, I'm like, man, there, that is that's right up my alley. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, um, i'd I'd like to say that I'm gonna figure out uh, how to farm and grow my own food and hopefully. You know, get get a good chunk of my food out of my own farm but so far we're at tomatoes and basil and we'll just kind of keep branching out from there uh, yep. but it, it's, it's a nice uh, adventure especially uh, given the state of the markets today where you know quite honestly the S&P has been 100 points on either side of uh, 4,000 and oil has been about five dollars on either side of 75 for the better part of six months now and anyone who's tried to play breakouts or play directional has just gotten chopped to bits and uh, I've been doing this for twenty five years i I, I kind of have a sense of when it's gonna trend and maybe when it's gonna collapse and uh, when it's just going to chop people to bits and when it chops people to bits the best thing you can do is find an excuse to be, not be in your office because mm-hmm. you, you're bound to get sucked into something and you know overall market direction usually determines what happens to assets uh, despite all of us liking to believe that uh, we, we choose better assets you know the, if, if you're gonna invest in energy you gotta get the price of energy right if you want to invest in you know other equities, you gotta get the price of you know, S&P right. And so um, I just feel like it's a big chop fest and it probably continues for a while until the Federal Reserve uh, realizes how far behind they are on the inflation uh, thing. And uh, then I think it all just detonates. <laughs> so, I mean, chop and then lose a ton of money doesn't sound like a, a great place to be. And uh, I've just decided I'm gonna focus on my surfing and do a little farming.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think it's important to start there because Um, you know, as we've, as we've mentioned, you know, in, in, in your, your discord channel and you've, you've written about this on, on adventures and capitalism, there's just such a draw for activity regardless of what the market's doing. And so if the market's in a sideways chop, people don't care. They feel like they have to be in the market. They always have to be doing something. And you made a great point, you know, basically along the lines of like, you know, doing nothing is doing something and sometimes doing nothing is, is really the best, most or highest performance thing you can do. And so I, I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit on that. And if that is something learning to do nothing, has that come easy to you, you know, right out of the gate? Or have you had to learn that over time? And then like, what, what can people learn now? Maybe to, to kind of leapfrog a few years to, to get to that point where they're okay with doing nothing. Cause it's really hard. Like on Twitter, everybody's got these ideas. Everybody's pitching everything. supposed to be doing all this stuff there's this constant desire for action um but like you said in a market that's range bound it doesn't matter what you do you're going to get ripped to bits
1: yeah i mean i think it starts really with a a framework of hey this is a really weird market everyone's queuing off what the Fed's going to do and the fed doesn't really know what they're going to do i mean you see them all uh giving speeches every day like i don't think they agree like i think uh Normally, the Fed, I mean, it's a, it's a political organization, it's like a Politburo, they all kind of say the same thing. There's a little variance, but they all kind of give the same language. And here, there's a lot of dispersion of views amongst the Fed governors, uh, more so than I've seen, really, because uh, they, none of them in their careers have seen inflation. And the normal trick of raising interest rate doesn't seem to be working. And, you know, you could say that there's a lag and that there usually is a lag. Or you can say that it's kind of like a Red Bull and vodka economy where the Fed's raising interest rates and the fiscal side is still, you know, handing stimmies out and running massive deficits. And so, of course, the economy is going to, you know, stay strong and, you know, be overheated. And then, you know, they they, they printed uh, trillions of dollars just two years ago. That money's still sloshing around and looking for a home. And so the Federal Reserve can raise and they can you know, QT a little tiny bit and it's not doing what they expect it to do. And I mean, it should be obviously it's not going to do what they're expecting it to do. And I feel like a lot of these Fed governors feel kind of lost. They stepped down from 75 to 50 to 25 and they made a very typical emerging markets mistake, which is that you don't step down until you've actually defeated inflation. And you know, uh, inflation going from eight to seven isn't defeating inflation. That, that just means that you know, it, it, it's slowing a little, um, and uh, as soon as they backed off, inflation's reaccelerating. I mean, think about it: we're comping right now versus uh, oil over a hundred year over year, and we're still doing seven percent. I mean, wait until oil gets back over hundred; we're going to be doing uh, teens, and and then what? I mean, is the Fed going to take uh, rates to fifteen and finally crush it? I, I don't think so. But I mean, that's what they probably should be doing. And, you know, as a result, they're just going to get further and further behind, which is going to accelerate inflation. But you have the, this, this weird uh, pull and tug and you know, every CPI number, you know, over 10 BIPs, the market moves uh, 200 handles. The S&P is just it's, it's too hard. And, you know, I, I think the where we get to eventually is the Fed uh, panics and starts raising rates again. And, you know, it's going to take a lot of inflation, though, because to go from 25s and start hitting it with 50s or maybe even hundreds again, I, I think would entail the Federal Reserve admitting that they have no idea what the hell they're doing and yeah. their bottles don't work. And you know, all the syncopants they, they, they've hired uh, to work there just make white papers that mean nothing. And, and so I think they're just gonna stay really far behind. And I think as the market realizes this, uh, it's gonna totally detonate uh, for risk assets. And you, know, you pull apart uh, risk assets and inflation assets and inflation assets gonna accelerate. You'll see. You know more divergence just like we had in uh you know 2022 in the first half you had a big divergence and so anyway in this backdrop of you know lots of things happening it's better just to do nothing i mean to your other question about how i learned this i mean i've got my ass kicked that's how you learn anything you just get your ass kicked uh you know in 2008 uh i was super bearish i had a ton of cash and i deployed the capital too early and you know I was only a couple months too early, but that, that worked out to be like 30 or 40% too early. Yeah. And I wish I had that capital in February of 2009, instead of spending it all in September and October. And, you know, I, I just, you, you learn. Uh, that's, that's the only way to do anything is is to get your ass kicked. So, um, anyway, I don't know if I've answered your question or just rambled.
0: No, no, you did. And I, I, I wanted to bring up, um... A couple, a couple points from that from that post, which is titled uh, "I just don't know," and I like how at the beginning you you basically simplify the whole investing process. You you know you say I live by two core investing rules: invest in situations where next year's results will improve dramatically, or invest in situations where the underlying asset is so amazingly bombed out that it really cannot get any worse. Um, and then you, you, you go on to say, you know, buy cheap assets that are reflecting positively. And it's really just that simple. And then farther down, you make the point about how people try to always kind of dip and dime in the market saying, quote, meanwhile, fortunes have been missed while trying to avoid a few percentage pullback and even larger fortunes have been squandered on hedging against that pullback. Real money is made on multi-quarter to multi-year trends with exponential torque. And so when you take that view of like multi-year trends, but maybe the shorter term trend is, you know, pulling back. How do you, how do you think about that in terms of deployment? Like, is that, is that something where you want to make sure you have enough cash where you can deploy on those shorter term pullbacks within this long multi-year trend? Or are you looking for stuff that's, you know, you've already got your set allocation in those trends. And so they'll dip and you'll, and, and and you'll just ride those out and you're waiting instead for the next bombed out cycle like how do you think about deploying capital within a longer term you know trend or super cycle that that you've got a view on
1: I mean I try to get deployed right at the turn uh and then it goes up it goes down it tends to be like a sine curve but it's 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 positively inflected and I mean at the bottom of each one of these uh cycles and you know they last a couple months a couple quarters whatever if I don't have a full position, I'll add, you know, if event-driven's some capital, we have to put it to work somewhere, I might add a little, but mostly I just ride it. I think, you know, when, just taking a step back a bit, um, our industry is a really stupid industry. Uh, you have these people that have told investors and everything's driven by our clients, you know, because the client's always right. They've told clients that you could produce uh, a very, you know, positive return with minimal volatility, and the two are, you know, not complementary. You can either have a lot of return, or you get with with a lot of volatility. You can have no return with no volatility. You know, it'll look like my checking account. And um, the problem is people have convinced uh, clients that you can have a pretty acceptable return with no volatility, and that's not natural. And, and the way people try to achieve this is they buy uh, put options, they hedge in various ways, they try to trade around uh, positions, you know, it goes up a little, they sell a little, it goes down a little, they sell a little. You, you, you know, you should be kind of like you know, buying on the dips, but a lot of times it goes down a little and people get scared if they go down more so they sell some, which pushes it down more as so they sell more. It, I've seen so many people say, hey, cuppy, I think this quarter is going to be bad. Uh, I'm gonna sell it and then buy it back 10% lower. They never get back in. If, if you know, if everyone's thinking that, it doesn't drop. Like, so what? The quarter's bad. Like, I've, I've seen so many of these situations where people say, "Oh, the stock's up a lot this month. Let, let's sell some. We'll buy it back." Well, doesn't mean it can't go up more. I mean, great, you caught 30% of a 500% move. Like, why? Like, wh- <laughs> why? I mean, why even play this game if that's all you're looking to do? And I've just seen so many people do it. I mean, it's it's truly fascinating. You know, Warren Buffett is the most successful investor and it's basically, he sits on a bunch of cash and about once every five to 10 years, something breaks and the whole world has a panic and he buys a ton of assets. And every year or two, one industry has a problem and it breaks and he buys, you know, a bunch of assets in that one industry. And he never goes all in, he never gets a margin call. He always has more cash than he needs. And he sits and he waits for something you know, dumb to happen in the world and then he deploys his capital. And as a result, he's you know, one of the most successful investors of all time. Everyone knows what he does. Everyone knows how successful he is. He doesn't say, oh, look, Coca-Cola is gonna miss by two cents, let's sell it, we'll buy it back. You know, it's just, he doesn't care. Yeah. And everyone knows this, this strategy works, but if you go to your clients and you say, look, you know, what has he had three or four times in his career where he was down more than half a bunch of times he was down 20 or 30. And you say, look, every year or two, we're probably gonna have it down 20 or 30. And, you know, once a decade, we'll be down 50 and, you know, it'll go up, it'll go down, but you'll have better returns. No one will ever give you money. I mean, imagine if I started a hedge fund, and I said, we're gonna sit on all the money and we're gonna invest it in T-bills. And it might be three years, it might be 10 years, but keep paying me mm-hmm. my fees. We're going to sit in T bills, wait for something bad to happen, then we'll deploy the capital. Yeah, everyone will say, "Copy, I'll never invest in that. I'm not going to pay you a two percent management fee to own T bills." Yeah, like even if I say well, I don't take a management fee, everyone's going to say, "Well, that guy's promising me, you know, fifteen percent with no volatility. Why would I give it to you?" Even though that guy who's putting the money to work at fifteen percent might be down fifty, and I'll be buying it when he has his margin call. No one wants that. It's just so amazing how our industry has evolved and you know how people think about this uh, universe of opportunities and mostly you just sit there and wait for something really obvious and most people i know can't wait they they just yep. feel like someone's paying me fees i have to use the money or if i tell my clients were you know have low exposure they might be like that's cute but then six months later they say well i mean let's give it to the guy who's producing returns and it, 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 the marketing drives everything and as a result i mean most clients get a pretty crappy product that underperforms, and you know I, I think what, what we've done that's really unique in my hedge fund is we we've told our clients, look, we're going to be very very volatile. We're going to have a down 30 every 18 to 36 months. You know if we don't have a down 30, uh, we're probably doing it wrong, and uh, you know, th- that's kind of our opening expectation. And as a result, it's liberating in that you know if the market goes down tomorrow, you know if the market goes nowhere. Like you yeah. know, I, I just buy good assets, and I don't have to worry about the ups and the downs. And as a result, you know, we, we've been you know putting up really strong returns. So mm-hmm. anyway, sorry I'm rambling again.
0: I mean, hey man, I I I brought you on. People people want to hear you talk. I mean, <laughs> the more the more you talk, and the less I less I talk, the better. But you mentioned you mentioned Buffett's kind of pitch to investors, and and it is it is interesting. Uh, I think a couple of years ago, I tweeted something about. Charlie Munger's partnership returns before he joined Buffett. And I think the last three years of his partnership, he put up like minus 30% each year. It was like yeah, lost was, 30, was down 70 or something. Yeah. It was like lost 30, lost 30, lost 35 for like three consecutive years. But his overall return, I believe was something around like 16 to 18% Kager for a long time. It was, it was, it was, it was very good. And I, and I tweeted something like, you know, Charlie Munger, if he was, if he was running his partnership today, like would have gotten eviscerated on Twitter for having having those types of returns. But like, you know, everyone, everyone gawks at him and gawks at Buffett, but that's the style. And it's and it's 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 fascinating how it's so easy to understand, but yet so hard to implement at any sort of professional scale.
1: Yeah, no one can really do it. I mean, look, we tell our clients that we're trying to produce uh you know outperformance over rolling three year periods just because I think it's hard to say we do it over rolling five-year periods, but you know, in reality, rolling you know ten-year periods is probably you know even like a, a better yardstick of how you're doing. And um, it's just amazing how everyone idolizes Buffett, but then and they all say they're going to do like Buffett. And you read a bunch of uh, quarterly LP letters, and like twenty percent of them quote Buffett, which is you know kind of creepy and odd. Like, none of them can invest like Buffett. They're all you know, maxed uh, exposure at all times. I mean, even the guys that are, you know, not bullish on the market, and so they want to express a neutral or bearish view, they'll still run like, you know, 125 uh, long, like 100 uh, short. They'll run like 25 net. They'll be running like 225 gross. And you look at 225, you're like, wow, man, you're really hitting the accelerator on exposure. And they're like, no, no, we're only 25 net. It's like no, that, that's a like real exposure. That's not what Buffett did. That's yep. nothing like what Buffett did. Buffett <laughs> sit there and t bills. Like what you're doing is just crazy, man.
0: Yep. Yeah. No. It's it's you know I every every year I've, people ask me you know hey are you going to the Buffett annual meeting and I have a very strong aversion to going. Um, you have to go once. I know. I know. And that's what I'm running out doing. of years. I know. I know. And so I think I think this 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 might be the year. Um, but speaking speaking of Buffett. You know, one thing that everyone seems to forget about what makes him amazing is he's had the permanent capital of his insurance business, um, right. which has which has insulated him from so many market vagaries. And what I like about what you've done recently, and this is this has seemed to be kind of an evolution in your strategy, at least since I followed you, is really leaning on the event driven book when. The broader market, or when other opportunities are, you know, things are more boring, and kind of using the event-driven book as some sort of, um, you know, just income-generating machine for the fund, and then using, you know, that capital that you earn to reinvest when those situations get uh, more attractive. So maybe discuss the evolution of that and how you're using that, as because I think you mentioned that in one of your letters, maybe is kind of using the event-driven book as almost this quasi premium harvest for like more, you know. Longer term inflection-based investing holdings?
1: Right. Well, you know, I believe I do inflection investing, you know, and so as an inflection investor, you need both uh, revenue and uh, earnings, and you can define your earnings how you want to define it., uh, but you need them both increasing year over year. That, that's what the market pays attention to. you know, you can't uh, you know cut your revenue and grow your earnings. market doesn't care. You need both growing, and it has to be year over year. And as I look at the world right now, There's not a lot of sectors where I could say, you know, 23 is going to be better than 24. You have to kind of have a sense of where 24, sorry, 23 better than 22, sense of where 24 is going to be outside of energy services where you just see these massive backlog builds. um, You know, look, I'm bullish on the price of oil, but I don't know if it's going to go this quarter, next quarter, next year. I mean, you know, uranium, I'm bullish, but don't really know when you know it, it's I, I don't have a lot of sectors where i feel very strongly that things are going to be getting better and as a result we, we just don't have that much exposure to longs and you know so if you take your long book down you have more balance sheet room and i'm still running more than 100 long but uh you know, part of that is the event driven book um but you, you you take your long book down you have more balance sheet room and you got to do something with the capital and i took a lot of event-driven stuff and it goes in cycles uh, there'll be periods where there's just not much to do and really from the summer of last year onward till today there just hasn't been much to do um mm-hmm. it'll be periods that are very very volatile and that have a lot of opportunities but the adventure in the book for me i'm trying to produce uh you know a couple hundred bips a-, a month if things are going well you know but definitely try not to produce losses if things aren't going well and you know you use that cash flow uh to buy more of your favorite ideas uh, obviously you know it dampens volatility if you could you know have positive returns on your uh, event driven book. It, mm-hmm. it dampens you know the, the pullbacks. They, they seem to offset. When the market's going up and my positions are going up, the event driven book doesn't really give a lot of opportunity. And then when the uh, market's going down, and it's volatile and a lot of my core positions going down, the event book tends to do really well. And you know that that, that cash flow lets me buy more of the things I like. So yeah they kind of offset. and I, I've been doing just a lot more on the event driven book or, or, or trying to. Um, when I say event-driven, you know, it's usually uh, idiosyncratic uh, corporate events, you know, CEO change or spinoffs, privatization, demutualization, like cluster insider buy. We, we look at a lot of these sort of things mm-hmm. for, for opportunities, either shorter term or, you know, a bit longer term. But a lot of what we do, honestly, is just writing puts on stuff we don't mind owning. Yep. And so, you know, stocks at 50 and, you know, we'll go out a couple of months and write the 40 put and it doesn't pay you that much, you know, it's 1% a month or something, but it's fine. It's insurance if, if I get hit and I own it at 40 and I get paid, you know 50 cents on it I own it 39 and a half. I don't mind owning it there. It's not right. like I'm, I'm going out there and seeking to uh, Buy it. I mean, I can't it's at 50 uh, But you know, I don't mind owning it So we, we write these things on stuff that we genuinely would probably buy around those prices and mm-hmm. do it in a very diversified way and quite honestly most of these go to put heaven and we earn our one or two percent yields or you know sometimes a little higher sometimes a little lower it's just a nice additive to what we're doing and that's a lot of what I'm doing right now because the venture of inside and the corporate events been a little slower than it had been you know last year and so I'm just doing a lot more of this put writing we've, we've been involved in some MA spreads uh, we've been looking for some A deals that we thought would have toppers where you know Unsolicited offer. We think the offer goes higher. You know, you hedge it a little. We've just been doing some some quirky, you know, super small stuff, 50 bips here and there. Uh, you know, per, per position across a lot of positions, and you know, it, it's been additive. I'm not gonna tell you we're hitting it out of the park, but it, it has been additive, and you know, it's it's a good way to use up a balance sheet room while you wait for an opportunity. Um, and you know, opportunities come. You know, all of a sudden, you know, it's usually nothing. And then there's some geopolitical events, so some corporate events, something changes in the world, and there's a ton of opportunity. And I have a feeling that this summer, this fall, is going to be a lot of opportunity as uh, interest rates go higher and you know something breaks. And so we're, we're excited for that. But for right now, you know, I'm trying to keep myself busy, and you know, you can only do uh, so much surfing. You got to do some farming too. I got some puts to
0: burn. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you do that put strategy, you, you know you don't have to go too deep in the weeds. But are you looking at a specific, you know, implied volatility number that you're saying, you know, hey, as long as IV is at this, then I'm excited to write puts, or is it is it is 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 it very much like, hey, we would love it at this price. Doesn't really matter what the IV is as long as we can back into maybe like a hundred bips return on the on the puts, or you know, just. I mean, look, I.
1: If you have two uh, setups, of you know equally interesting and the IV is higher on one, you can do the one that's higher. But if you go and scan for high IV, you're mostly going to get like Ponzi schemes, biotech that are about to have you know an FDA hearing. Like you don't want that sort of stuff. Like that's not. I guess you could do that in you know super small size, but that's how you get really badly hurt. What, what you want to do is have a list of stuff that you genuinely want to own, and you know it pays you one percent or two percent or maybe three percent a month. Like those percentages, they add up really fast. And I, I think that's the the way to do it. But you really have to know that you want to own it. And you have to have the balance sheet room that if it all gets put to you, that you're going to get assigned and you know be able to hold all of it. I've seen yeah. a lot of people write too many puts and then they get some stuff assigned. And
0: it's something of a shock when it gets assigned. They get margin called. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So no, you have to do this
1: in a disciplined uh, way. and You have to really know what you own and, and make sure you want to own it there.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's a, that's a perfect segue into, into, you know, wanting to own something and we can, we can dive deep into journey energy. Now, uh, ticker symbol J O Y I think it's on the OTC J R N G F maybe don't quote me on that, but, uh, you, you own it. We own it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, uh, interesting Canadian small cap EMP run by an interesting seasoned veteran. Uh, I actually just listened to his, uh, podcast with, um, Showbame, i think i'm gonna i'm gonna get his i'm gonna get his name wrong but uh it was a canadian podcaster and uh great 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 episode i'll link to it in the show notes but walk us through that journey deep dive um you know the whole the whole kind of thesis top to bottom and then and then we can hit some additional questions
1: yeah i mean i I think anyone who's curious about journey should listen to that uh interview with alex verge and also read uh, my buddy josh young's uh, write-up it's on his uh, Substack, i think um you know, I found most uh, energy CEOs, uh, they just want to grow the most barrels of production possible because usually means they get the biggest bonus and they get to tell their friends how many barrels they're producing a day. And they really don't care if it's profitable or not. And they don't really care if shareholders make money or not. You know, it's just not what drives them. And as a result, you see a lot of these energy companies that destroy obscene amounts of capital, uh, often drilling wells that are marginally economic. Um, yeah. Or totally, you know, wasteful. And um, I just found Alex to be a different sort of person. I've had a couple of conversations with him. He thinks very outside the box, very uh, creatively, very much like uh, focused on shareholder value and value per share. And it's this transaction accretive and downside mitigants. And, you know, he's not buying the A plus assets. He's kind of buying a lot of B's and C's and he's getting them at a great price. And uh, maybe take a step back and you know, there's a story I kind of t- told on the market huddle, but I, I want to tell it again. Um, when oil went negative, um, some friends of mine and, and I decided to put together a uh, energy company to buy low decline assets that were slightly higher cost because when oil went negative and then bounced to 30, a lot of these uh, wells were 30, you know, break even on lifting cost, And so. There's no cash flow and uh, the owners couldn't make their debt payments. And these things were available for literally nothing for Flowing Barrel. Uh, and there's websites you, you can go find. You could buy like one well. You could buy like a fraction of well. Pardon?
0: What's the website? I
1: don't remember. <laughs> there's like <laughs> 10 of them. Uh, but you could buy like a tiny fractional interest in a well. You can buy the whole well. You could buy, you know, a couple hundred million dollar oil fields. Like everything was for sale. And I started going through the, the, the data. And I just said, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like, I, I know enough to know that I have no idea what I'm looking at. Yeah. And, um, but I also knew that if you buy wells that are cash flow break even at 30 and uh, you think oil is going higher and you could buy them for literally nothing. I think these were like $500 a flowing barrel or a thousand dollars. It was just so cheap. And I just knew you could make a lot of money. And. We went searching for a ceo and all these ceos were interviewed about 10 guys and they all just kept saying a copy i want to drill wells like why do you want to buy cash flow like cash flow is useless like let's go look for buried treasure that's fun and we had the same conversation with all these guys and we're like so once we buy these like you know do you have the capacity like to hire people that maintain the wells and file all the reports we have to file they're like yeah yeah I know how to do all that stuff that's really really boring that's like office work i want to drill for buried treasure and we said, no, we don't want buried treasure. We want to make a lot of money. And they're like, no, we really want buried treasure. And this one guy's like, I'll do it for a year if you promise we can look for buried treasure after. And I'm just like, no, in a year, we're going to have lots of dividends. I, I don't want to waste it on. I want the money. I want, I want it for me. Yeah. And we eventually gave up looking for the, the right CEO. We couldn't find anyone that just wanted to you know make the wells you know 5% more productive or lower the cost 5% every month. Like These, these guys that just are more efficient. And at the time, I owned some uh, sand ridge and it was trading around a dollar and uh, the, the guy running it was just looking for buried treasure and he was drilling holes in uh, Colorado. And, you know, they're uneconomic, but he spent 200 million looking for them anyway. And one day Carl Icahn woke up and came to his census. He was a large shareholder and he fired the guy and he brought the guy and told the guy to cut costs. And the guy had a conference call and he said, we're going to cut a lot of costs and fire a bunch of people. And I said, no, you're not. I talked to the guy on the phone like two weeks later and he walked me through all the cost cutting he thought he was going to do and how he was going to get rid of uh, assets um, you know, in, in Colorado. He was just going to focus on the big con assets and they're going to sell an office building they had and just basically produce cash flow. And he actually did what he said he was going to do. And there was this weird moment in time where the company was trading at a do- like a dollar-ish a share and they had $2 a share of uh, net cash, no debt. They were uh, profitable at you know low twos, net gas pricings. They stopped drilling. They were just like uh, cash flowing it. And uh, I was really bullish net gas. Or I was bullish NGLs, bullish oil. And you know I just said, why am I finding a CEO? Here you have all these assets that are in the same situation, sort of making small bits of money. But if the price goes up, you, know, you make a fortune. Yeah. And there's $2 of cash. I could buy it for a dollar. If I'm wrong, I, I, I double my money effectively. And I like the guy running it because he's actually doing what he said he was going to do. Yep. and you know, fast forward to today, and you know, uh, Sandridge has something like seven dollars a share of net cash. They they've just held on to all the cash. They never they, they never drilled. I mean, now they're drilling a little, but uh, yeah. you know, it went in two and a half years. it Went from a, a two dollars to seven dollars, and the stock went past twenty. I mean, I didn't hold it the whole way, unfortunately, but uh, it, was, it was really good for me and my and my LPs. And you know, we we gave up on building this oil company because. Um, someone else was doing it and w- w- why do the effort so it's kind of it's circular to back to journey uh, my buddy josh young has been bugging me for six months maybe a year i have to talk to alex Verge. I have to talk, And i i'm like i don't want to deal with it. i hate oil i hate oil i hate oil and one day he finally ba- basically just cold called me and put uh, alex on we started talking and i just like the guy i knew nothing about the story he was just walking yeah. through how he sees the world and how he sees uh you know buying uh, cheap assets in the energy patch and his history he's done this uh, a couple times twice now at, at different companies but the you know, dozens of transactions and which ones worked why they worked which ones didn't why and at the end of the call i said i'm gonna go spend the weekend on this journey energy and you know by monday we were, we were buying shares and it, you know i, I was kind of lucky in that uh the price of oil dropped into the 70s so you know Journey shares dropped from like six and change into the low five so it was good entry for me um but also, uh, Alex, is a, he wants to run a roll-up. Uh, and When you think of roll-ups, uh, you're buying assets that are below PDP. So you're already getting something for less than it's worth, in theory. But PDP is calculated based on a strip price. And if you think the strip price is going up, uh, you know you're going to make a lot of money. Of course, if the strip price goes down, you're going to lose a bunch of money. Um, and he's buying these things that have um, a lot of potential, there's some synergies because they're near where he has existing operations. Um, and I just know that with oil, you know, below eighty, there's a bunch of guys that are wounded, and I think he's gonna have an opportunity to make some uh, impressive transactions. Uh, he uh, last year he almost doubled the size of the company uh, with a, a transaction with EnterPlus. He doubled sized the company, but he only gave away about ten percent of the equity, and everything else was debt funded. And I think he's gonna do you know other really really accretive transactions, where you know with the Enerplus transaction, something like a third of the total purchase price of the debt's already paid off. Uh, he needs a couple more months of deleveraging. It's gone a little slower because the price of oil is down from where I think he budgeted it. But yeah. he's going to do more deals, and the longer oil stays uh, cheap, the more likely it is that he finds something you know really attractive and kind of wounded. And you know, funny thing about the about oil is that. Oil guys are always bullish and so when oil is above 100, they, they take on a bunch of debt to do stuff and then when oil drops to 75, you know, they, they get themselves in trouble. And you know, I, I think it's like the Warren Buffett principle, he's kind of, you know, Alex Verge is going to be uh, buying things using debt, paying off the debt, and as his balance sheet has capacity, he's going to do another transaction. And he always has the flexibility to issue some equity like he, he just did today or do something else to kind of you know maneuver around. but. For the most part, the goal is to use mostly debt and not so much equity, yeah. and have it be really, really accretive. So anyway, um, it, it's circular way of coming into Journey and getting to know Alex pretty well, and you know, I, I think he's just a better operator on the cost side, but also I think he's just a smarter buyer of stuff. You know, not buying uh, troublesome assets, and you know, really thinking outside the box about how to finance these assets and how to. Uh, acquire things with synergies and you know acquire the assets that a lot of people don't want because they're not the sexy assets everyone yep. wants a really sexy thing there's something to be said for just buying cash flow
0: yep well i think i think there's a couple things that i got from watching the interview with him which again i think every everybody should the first one is he's very unpromotional and he's very just kind of direct and matter of fact and and
1: yeah i think he i think a stock would trade at you know pdp or a small premium to pdp like uh, like like a lot of uh, his peers, if he uh, w- w- was telling the story and making promises, and you know, if, you always want to look at why something is cheap. I think the, the reason Journey's cheap is because Alex is just kind of like, "We'll try our best, but we'll do better." We'll, we have a big plan, whereas everyone else goes, "We're drilling 100 IRR wells. We're just going <laughs> to keep going and going." Yeah. And with Alex, it's more of a, a leap of faith. Do you think he will find something else distressed? And grow the value of the company. If not, you have all your cash flow. Yeah. You can always drill wells. I mean, there's plenty of uh, dr- drill spots, but that's not the most accretive thing to do. Yeah. Acquisitions are way better than drilling. Yeah. But everyone else is just like, we have a, you know an inventory of 500 wells. We're just gonna go go go. And and Alex is kind of like, trust me, Cuppy. I'm gonna do something else smart. I've done you know dozens of things smart in my life.
0: Yeah, and it's and harder. even. Yeah, and even even in like uh, I think I think I watched one of his videos where he was doing some investor conference and he was, you know, pitching. And I say pitching in 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 air quotes, because you wouldn't think that he was pitching when you hear him. He just he just like talks about his business. He's like, Yeah, like this is a plan. We're gonna do this, this is what we're doing. Um, you know, this is what we hope to do. And and I think again, going back to like why is the stock cheap and 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 even tying this back to like how you Um, interact and communicate with LPs, it's a harder story to tell other people because there's a lot of soft things that you have to wrap your head around. It's not like, oh, you know, it's not not very mathematical. It's not like X plus Y equals Z. It's, hey, I trust that this guy is going to do things that will enhance the value of the shares. And so it's way more of a jockey bet and less of like a napkin math type thing. I mean, there is napkin math involved, but it's way more a bet on the jockey and that's right. And, and that's and that's just way harder for the market to kind of price in, in general.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the market likes to look at hundred IRR wells at X, you know, production cost. You know what a well cost, You know whether or not these numbers are actually real because they're usually like made up. I mean, yeah. if it was hundred IRRs, a bunch of uh, junior uh, producers wouldn't have gone bankrupt last cycle. You can't go bankrupt at hundred IRRs. You know, okay. so but but you could, put it into a spreadsheet and you can sell the dream of, you know, this just reinvestment cycle. And it's, it's way easier than saying, Hey, he's going to do accretive uh, creative acquisitions. And yeah, you know, like I said, he's got plenty of locations he can drill and he probably will do a bit of drilling just because if you have infrastructure, you, you know, want to have a good level of production. So you get, you know, economies of scale in that infrastructure and, you know, wells declines, so you have to do something each year. But that's not really the play here. And I think it just is harder for people to conceptualize. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's also done something that I think is really smart with his power plant. The uh, you know, power prices, electricity prices in B.C. have gone crazy. And it's a big cost tr- uh, center for him. I mean, they, they've he like 5
0: they they've, they've like, I think, four or five X'd from last year.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks. And, you know, he kind of flipped it on his head and he said, well, we have tons of nat gas. We're not really getting paid well on it. Let, let, let's just produce our own uh, electricity. And he bought some power gen equipment, started small, figured out the kinks in it, started you know, powering his own stuff. From there, he said, we still have plenty of gas. Let's sell it into the grid. And you know, I don't see anyone else doing that. I'm sure people are doing that on a small scale. But uh, you know, as a percentage of EBITDA, I don't see other people doing it. And you know, power, obviously, is, more, is less volatile than uh, energy. It probably deserves a better multiple uh it doesn't decline it's you know steady state you have megawatts the, 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 those are yours for you know 30 years and uh, so it's not like it's declining 15 20 percent a year and um, but it, it complicates the story which means you know an P guy has to go call his analyst over you know at a different firm that does electricity and says what do you think of this you know just everything adds complexity when, when it, it should be just de-risking the thesis and you know adding value uh, but. You always go into something and say, why is it cheap? And I think I know why it's cheap.
0: So why why are the assets that he's buying cheap? And 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 I know you say that they're, you know, kind of B and C assets, but then the logical question is, okay, if 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 he's seeing this opportunity, then surely, you know, other people kind of recognize that the arbitrage is there. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but you know, he's seeing something out there, like why why is he afforded the opportunity to buy these assets at really cheap prices that other people can't or won't. There's a bunch of reasons,
1: and I'm not going to say that he's not the only guy looking. There's other people doing this, obviously. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you look at every energy upcycle, the guys who made the most money are the guys who bought a bunch of uh, you know cheapish assets, strung it all together, and got it right that the price of energy was going up. And We have a family friend; she's done this a few times now, buying cheap assets, you know, at the bottom ish of the cycle, patching it all together, getting it to a certain scale, and selling out not quite the top of the cycle, but you know, on the way, and you know, she's made a few billion dollars for herself, starting with not much money. It's, it's impressive uh, through a few cycles. Uh, so I know this works, I've seen it work. Um, why other people aren't doing this? I mean, I think you have to go back and say, who are these sellers? Um, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, but last year was a you know, good year for the energy sector. But private equity, they, they were net sellers. Uh, they, they, they had investments they had made in the bad years. They had investments they've made before 2014. They have um, a bunch of clients where there's pension funds endowments that just don't want energy. Yep. You know, I think a lot of these bigger private equity firms, they say, yeah, we're going to sell this at a terrible price, but we run tens of billions of dollars, you know, let's sell, you know, $200 million for 50 million. But we can say we have no more energy. And it's a strategic decision. you know, SBV number 12 is just gonna have a lower RRR. but it's good for you know the, the the you know the GP who cares about you know the, optics. Fire, you know, the firefighters of Cleveland or whatever, like they, they're just gonna suffer. Um, and I think you see, you know, you see net divestment. It, I mean, I think how hard it would be to launch a private equity vehicle that says, you know, give us a couple hundred million dollars to buy energy. Who's the logical buyer of this? I mean, the, the traditional private equity guys, they all have ESG mandates. They, they can't go do yeah. it. Of course, it's like wealthy guys, but if you're a wealthy guy and you already own a bunch of oil wells, do you really want more? You know, it, yeah. it's
0: like, who, who's it's the, the headache pick? of all that?
1: Yeah. And so we, we've seen a lot of uh, semi-distressed sales by people who are saying, wow, I finally can get a bid on these assets. It's sort of kind of close to what I paid for them 10 years ago. Just get me out. And you know, like I said, you also have a lot of guys that just took on a lot of debt or they're doing some strategic, you know, Enterplus was leaving uh, Alberta. You know, someone corporate just said, you know, get me out of this province. I don't know why. They just – and were there other bidders on the deal? I, I I don't know, but there's not that many players, especially when mm-hmm. you think of how much capital it took to acquire it. I mean, the fact that they got Enterplus to effectively vendor finance it Almost tells you what uh, you know the 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 capacity of other bidders to take on the deal, and I think he's going to do more things like this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it, well, you mentioned the vendor financing, and that was fascinating because the way that they structured the deal was commiserate with where prices traded, like where where the underlying oil price traded. So if oil traded down, their principal interest payments would you know decline sequentially in line with with. With a declining oil price which i just find fascinating and you know the fact that they were able to structure a deal that way um you know it kind of goes to show how you know and alex mentioned this in that interview how they can get creative with financing um you know to do stuff that that that's well, you can
1: only get creative like that if you have a seller who really wants out <laughs> you know very good point <laughs> i mean think of it this way you know if you're buying a home and there's just no buyers and there's everyone on the block wants to sell you're going to get a you know the the seller to give you a take back note they might you know give you all sorts of reps and warranties they might do all sorts of stuff whereas you know if it's the only home for sale and there's multiple bidders and the price the price of a million bucks you might have to pay 1.2 and it's cash only they won't even wait for you to get a mortgage right so it you know, it, it comes down to what the market looks like. And I like to invest in situations where there's um, a lot of forced sellers and not a lot of buyers has been starved of capital. And you're, you are you could buy things for way less than they're worth. And if you could sh- string together a bunch of these sort of situations and the synergies on the operation side, I think you can make a lot of money. And like I said, i I've been looking for, uh, I'd been looking to do this when oil was 30, oil is 75. So it's, it's, you know, more than twice as high, but, um, I feel like I found the right uh, you know, situation and the right, right management team to do this with. And so, you know, instead of being CEO, I, I, I let someone else do all the work. It's it's better.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think it's I think it's also important too. Going back to, you know, you said you had that conversation with Alex, and then you spent the weekend studying it, and then by Monday you were oh. you were buying shares. And and again, I think that's important to note because you're doing the work constantly over time, over years, and then when you find a situation that's interesting. All of that work allows you to move very quickly. And so, you know, instead of spending months and trying to really, you know, dive deep in air quotes, you've got the thesis outlined in your head and you're just kind of waiting for that puzzle piece to fit right in before you complete the picture, if that makes sense.
1: Right, right. And when I say I did due diligence, I mean, one of the big things that I did beyond reading, you know, a couple of years of filings was I spoke to some people that knew him. Yeah. uh and you know people who had done uh, deals with him either buyers of assets or sellers of assets to him i just kind of said like what's it like to negotiate against this guy like wh- ha- like and they said he's impressive he you know thinks outside the box He, everyone else is just like here's my price it's cash and he's he's kind of like hustling and i don't know people had good things to say which is odd because i found most uh people in the resource sector i don't know why it is but they all throw mud at each other whereas hmm. people like in my industry they you know, ask me what i think of another portfolio manager i say yeah you know look at his numbers that's it is what it is right yeah. you know once you have yeah. about a five-year track record you can tell if the guy's good or not and you know is he an honest guy yeah sure is he a nice guy to have a beer with great you know there's only so much you could say about a guy who's you know if the guy is outperforming his uh benchmark or his goals well then he's doing really good and yeah. if he's not he's doing really poorly Whereas in, in in energy, I feel like everyone hates everyone, and they all like, yeah, yeah he bought that asset; it's a terrible asset. It's gonna in three years he's gonna realize why you know th- th- these these liabilities, and he did this thing. Everyone everyone talks about all the bad stuff, huh. and look, these are energy assets, They and they tend to be older uh, assets that have you know uh, ARO. There might be some environmental liabilities. There's problems, but I think people know they their problems. Let's go back to Sandridge. Everyone. Uh, I, I, wrote, I reached out to all my friends and I said, look, there's $2 of cash and it's profitable and it trades at a dollar. I don't see how I get hurt. And there's a pretty good chance that energy prices go higher and make a ton of money. And everyone kept telling me how terrible Sandridge was and, you know, h- how terrible the assets are. And do you know that they're creating earthquakes? And do you know that they're injecting, you know, billions of barrels in, into the ground every day to produce, you know, one barrel of oil? And yep. everyone told me everything and I go. I know that all, I know that all, you know, Tom Ward wasted a hundred million dollars uh, redesigning his executive office. Like I know that, but Tom Ward doesn't work there anymore. Like people would tell me all this stuff and I'd be like, like it didn't matter, but everyone was just anchored on- And it's already in the
0: price. It's already all in the price. All of that information yeah. already in the price.
1: Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, I think it's, it's important to know with Journey that, you know, these assets have ARO liabilities. And you know that cuts both ways. So the price of oil goes down, and you decommission wells. You know that's a cash expense that you know, is coming soon. And if the price of oil goes higher, you know they might never decommission these wells. or might be twenty years into the future, in which case you know there's a ton of cash flow between now and then. Those liabilities are misstated, and there's probably you know somewhere in between is the right answer. But you know if you're bullish oil, then you know this is like an extra lever of upside bullishness. And you know if you're bearish oil, this probably isn't the right stock for you. And no, I was looking to get you know operating leverage and torque, and you know whether it's the M and A strategy or the operating leverage of the assets, where, you know which have slightly higher cost or the ARO, all these things you know compound to give you massive torque. And if I get it wrong, you know it's a couple percent of my portfolio. I'm not going to you know cry too hard. It it yeah. happens. But you know, uh, journey went through oil going to, to negative. It went through pretty nasty seven-year bear market. And the whole time he was acquiring assets, doing accretive stuff, uh, you know, juggling some bank debt and moving it around and where everyone else diluted massively and everyone else handed in the keys and said, this is too hard. You know, especially when, you know, you don't get your bonus that year. Alex just soldiered on. And you know, I feel like now he's going to reap the rewards in the upcycle. And, you know, if I get it wrong, and it all goes back to, you know, 30 bucks. He'll, he'll somehow or another, you know, shuffle through.
0: Yeah, I mean, he plowed... I think he plowed twenty-one million dollars of his own money uh, into into Journey. When he that's a lot of money, And yeah.
1: When it, when it, when it got real cheap, he bought millions. I don't know the exact way, but he bought a whole lot more shares in the open yeah. market. I like to see that. You know, he's got a lot of skin in the game. He owns a lot of shares. Uh, I mean, he's he's wealthy anyway. But he he wants this one to work, and so I, I think that's, that's that's very different from. You know, a lot of these other companies you know we, we saw them in 2019 where they literally like had covenant uh, waivers they blew their revolver and they got cut off from capital and the stocks trade like 13 cents and the guys are still drilling wells it's like you're <laughs> gonna pay off your like you could buy back your, your your junior debt at like 10 cents on the dollar why are you drilling wells oh i want to yeah. look very treasure Like, it yep. made no sense
0: yeah you mentioned you've mentioned a few kind of acronyms and I want to, I want to tie this into how you think about valuation. So the two acronyms, just, just for people that may not know at all, um, ARO, and then I think PDP. And so why don't you kind of explain or ex- expand on what those mean? And then, and then go into how you think about valuing something like journey. I think you mentioned, you know, they trade it, call it, you know, uh, less than one times, I think PDP or something. And so just kind of expand on that.
1: So I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself and show you how little I actually know about energy. I mean, I'm a generalist and generalist, uh, we, we focus on big principles, yes. Uh, but we don't get down the weeds. Uh, so I'm going to um, probably embarrass myself, but ARO is uh, the decommissioning liabilities of, of wells. Okay. You know, you can't just, when the well stops producing, you can't just be like, good luck. <laughs> Goodbye. No, <laughs> but I mean, a lot of people have done that. And as a result, you know, states and provinces have massive uh, liabilities to solve in, in fixing yeah. these. You know, you got to take up your midstream infrastructure, you have to abandon the well. Like so a- as a solvent operator, it's, it's your responsibility to do that when the well stops producing at a certain level. And I mean, it's not cheap, uh, especially when you have a lot of wells that aren't producing much oil per well. these aren't i mean when you think of a well you have flush production on day one it kind of like trails off a bit and um you know these are i don't want to say near the end of their lives but you know middle of their lives and onwards and so you know that that liability is real and you know they're uh plugging and abandoning wells on a regular basis at journey right now But, you know, if the price of oil goes down and these wells uh, are no longer economic, they're going to have to accelerate that. And it becomes a a real liability. But it's on their balance sheet. You can look at it. Uh, There's some footnotes about it. I I don't want to tell you I really understand it very well, but I understand it from a conceptual standpoint. Yeah. Uh, PDP is, you know, there's many ways to look at the assets of an uh, oil and gas company. Uh, And I want to start by saying that it's very, very fuzzy math. Uh, You hire a consultant, the consultant is you know on your payroll effectively they kind of give you what the number you want there's, there's some consultants that are more credible than others but but in the end you know it, it's a very rough view of how much oil you have how much oil you know you can produce what's recoverable what yeah. the cost to recover it'll be there's adjustments uh there is adjustments to trying to make it more conservative but no one knows yeah. but in, in an abstract sense uh, pdp is what's already producing You're not, you're not guessing you know what's still in the ground you're not guessing well it's still in the ground but you're you're not guessing you know hey i've never drilled here what do you think the production will be and there's differing degrees of of certainty there's pdp ppdp this you know and i I just focus on pdp you know i think this well has an eor of this and you know that you you gotta just discount it back and once again it's really abstract math yeah but you kind of when, when you have a field and there's many wells in the field you have a certain knowledge of what the decline rate will be, and you can build onto a spreadsheet what that field will produce in total barrels. And there's things you can do to, uh, you know, Im- improve the, re- the 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 recoveries. You know, your water flood. You can go back there. And you know, play with each of the individual wells. And there's a lot of you know variables, but it gives you kind of a baseline to say what do I think this thing is worth? Because you kind of know what it costs to produce, you kind of know how much of it you're gonna produce, you use a very high discount rate, and you use you know strip pricing. You say, How much money am I gonna get out of this thing? And I think it's a starting point for what the asset's worth. I mean, these industries where gap accounting or IFRS is really, really useful. in in determining you know because you have an industry cash in cash out cash in cash out it's really easy and you have an industry like oil and gas where you make investments today that maybe that last barrel doesn't come out for 50 years and you have to estimate there's a lot of estimates and you know that goes into your depletion and all your other things and who the hell knows (laughs) who knows (laughs) yeah and so i i I think think. what uh, alex is doing because he's not doing as much drilling he's looking at this really on a cash flow basis he's saying 80 dollars oil if i could buy it for three times cash flow and i think oil probably goes higher then it's gonna be okay and yeah i have some liabilities at the end of the cycle and you know I have some other things but you know if it's you know three times cash flow maybe i'm only paying two times cash flow a little over $100 a hundred dollars barrel and you, know, you kind of like work it together but he's thinking you know it's a three to year three-year payback on my capital i put out and maybe i can improve that by some operational things like this can be good for me and he's not saying you know how do i look at this you know wedge of declining production on a PDP, and but i mean i'm sure he's looking at that too but you know it's cash on cash and that's usually the best way to make investments
0: yeah and i and i think the other thing too, to mention especially in the energy space is being comfortable with the uh abstractness of of kind of what you're investing in and that and that also correlates with making sure that you're paying a cheap enough price where you can be comfortable with how abstract and how wide the range of potential outcomes are for an investment. Um, but the other thing that that's that's important is is ensuring that you don't fool yourself into false precision when really what you need is just to be comfortable with the abstraction. And I think that's where yeah, people, can, people can get in trouble is they try to be very specific. Like, for example, mining or, you know, if you've got, I've been, you know, like I said, I, I, I pitched you a, a, a lithium stock and one of these days I'm going to pitch you a stock that you won't, you know, shit on. But nevertheless, um, I, 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 you know, kind of going, going through it, you know, it's like, yes, like this is how much the mine costs. This is how much we expect to produce a year this is the average price that we expect for the lithium, you know, when it comes out of the ground for us to sell. It's like, there's so much variability in that. And if you deceive yourself into thinking like, oh, I know exactly how much they're gonna produce a year. I know exactly how much is in the ground. And I know exactly how much they're gonna sell for, like you're gonna get blown out because you're not gonna be comfortable with that abstraction when things inevitably change.
1: Right, and that's why I think, you know, what you're doing in in oil and gas, when you buy an existing asset, You can look and you say, you know, here's a bunch of wells. They're declining at 15%. You know, some are higher, some are lower, but this is what the field's doing. We think there's some things we could do to improve. You know, we kind of know what our lifting costs are. We kind of know what our midstream costs are. We know what our, you know, crown royalties. We kind of, you're going to be off, but you're going to be off by like 10%. You're not going to be off by some magnitude where you can't uh, build a spreadsheet model and say, I can finance this thing at this rate and have a good return. And then let, let's go do it and do it a lot of times and right. use that cash flow to keep doing it. And that, that's how you get, you know, a lot of, so you get to making a lot of money, especially if you could do it a lot of times, the price of oil goes up because the price of oil solves all problems.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, are decline rates one of the, I guess, more important levers when you go to follow and kind of test to see if this journey thesis is working where if decline rates start going let's say i don't i don't know where they are right now to like a to you know any specific number but let's say they go from like 10 to 25 to 30 would that be something that would kind of change how you view the opportunity over time
1: yeah i mean look if the decline rate accelerated uh you'd want to know why yeah uh decline rates don't usually accelerate but sometimes they do um and i think that would change you know how you would look at the opportunity obviously um you know I, I would hope that alex uh has a head for this remember I'm a generalist i am already in over my head and uh, in, investing in something i'm relying on uh, josh who has one of the best track records in this industry at uh not only choosing good stocks but telling me why uh, things i've looked at are terrible he he saved me from like a hundred really really obvious mistakes where people in his industry uh got badly burned and they shouldn't have because it in retrospect, it was obvious, because once he explained it to me, it was like, I get it now, you know? Yeah. um, And so, but I, I'm kind of going in here, you know, I, you know I, I, eyes wide shut and saying, uh, I'm, I'm relying on a guy who's done this twice very successfully in, in terms of Alex and my buddy, Josh, who owns, also owns a lot of shares. And I understand conceptually why this strategy should work. And I think we're you know near the bottom of one of these uh, energy cycles where it went from negative to 130 to 70. And I think, you know, we're, we're setting up for the next uh, move up and it'll come down again. And I think that on every one of these pullbacks, you know, on, on the way up, uh, they'll pay down some debt from the last deal. On the way back down, they'll have some balance sheet capacity to buy something else. Because yep. remember, oil going from 130 to 70 means someone goes bankrupt. There's always something to buy if, yeah. if that's your business model. You know, if your business model is, you know, I'm going to budget this many wells this year and you've already spent the money and you've already... You're locked in uh, the rig and the frat crew and you already have down payments and then the price of oil drops. You can get rid of some of this equipment, but you're going to have penalties. You're not going to have the capacity to then go and do an acquisition because your business model is I got land. I want to drill it. If your business model is I'm going to delever and wait, well, then you're going to find something.
0: Yep. No, I mean, it, it makes sense. And like I said, you know, we own we own some. Um it's kind of a trifecta setup for us with fundamentals, macro technicals. Um, And so, you know, it's always, always great to chat. Uh, Is, are there, are there any other ways that you think you could be wrong on this? Obviously, you know, you said you're going in, you know, there's a lot of abstraction, but any, anything that you've kind of thought, um, you know, obviously if something happens with Alex, you know, if he, if he leaves the company or if, or if he changes strategies dramatically, that would be a, that'd be, you know, maybe a big red flag, but, any, any, Anything else that you've kind of spotted or thought about?
1: Well, I mean, energy prices obviously are a big one. Uh, it's the obvious one. Uh, yeah. You know, there's always uh, discounts for uh, Canadian uh, oil just because uh, WCS has egress problems. And, you know, this problem, like, you know, it, it waxes and wanes depending on, you know, where you are in the cycle of new, new egress coming in. So I, I definitely want to look at, you know, discounts to WTI. Um, you know, I, I think the big risk for me, honestly, is uh, Canada. I mean, hmm. the, the guy running Canada is insane. He's like a little African dictator and he passes laws uh, randomly based on, you know, whatever's in his mind. And um, th- th- there's a bunch of uh, countries you'd call real that are doing really stupid things in the energy patch, including our country in America. And ever since the UK put in excess profits taxes and people consider them a real country, um, other countries look at that and they say, oh, cool, we can make a lot of money and we can use it on social programs and I'll get more votes. And, you know, because, you know, socialist countries are always short on money. And so, you know, here's an industry that's doing well. And, you know, if they do too well, I think uh, there's going to be an excess profits tax or maybe a carbon tax or, you know, Trudeau may just step in there and say we don't allow drilling anymore because, you know, we're, we're trying to make the weather better or, you know, who knows what he's going to think of. Yeah. And so um, you know, I, think, I think Trudeau is the biggest risk by far to this uh, investment working. And I assume that there'll be government action against energy. I just don't know what the magnitude of it's going to be. But then you look around the world and most countries are targeting their uh, energy production. Mm-hmm. And a lot of countries are not particularly stable in terms of rule of law. And so, it, you know, how much worse is Canada than your typical failed uh, African state? And it's it's hard to, you know, quantify it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, it's a good point. And that's, <laughs> it's always tough. Cause like, how do you even discount that into a price? Like whatever Trudeau decides to do, that's hard. That's a hard, uh, that's a hard uh, kind of, you know, decay that you've got to put on your, your, your terminal value.
1: Yeah, uh, but I mean, I think that's why Canadian assets trade for less than US assets to begin with, you know? Yep. Uh, The guy running our country is insane as well. But at least in the U.S., you know, you you have some sort of due process and you have, you know, uh, an ability to appeal. And these things just go slower. Whereas, you know, Canada, you know, parliamentary system is more dictatorial. At the same time, you know, Alberta may just secede, in which case you have a home run. So you never
0: know. Yeah, that's a good point. Are there, are there any other interesting ideas or industries or inflections that are on your radar now? I know you know you're doing a lot of surfing, a lot of farming, not much not much action. Um, anything out there that might look interesting you know as we head into the summer middle of 2023?
1: I really like uranium. I, I, I just think that um, you can't run deficits, very large deficits for multiple years in a row without uh, the price uh, going higher because uh, you know the price has to go in h- higher to incentivize new mines to come online. That's just the, the way commodity cycles work. And you know, we had a period really since the first atomic bomb where there was, there was a glut of uranium. Uh, something like 60 years in a row, they produced more uranium than they consumed and you know, warehouses filled up with the stuff. And starting in 2018, uh, we, we started running deficits really for the first time ever. And those deficits have consumed quite a lot of pounds. Uh, It's hard to quantify how many, but you also have a lot of utilities globally that have gotten accustomed to cheap uranium that have worked down their own inventories. And so as a result, if they're not restocking, then it's the same as using uh, pounds in a warehouse. And I think we'll get to a point uh, sometime soon where uh, you, you run out of pounds to consume and utilities start looking at the price of uranium, which is now above 50, they start saying, "Hey, that's going up. Uh, let, let's buy it before it goes up more." And you know, they, they become net buyers as opposed to you know, uh, you know, net divestors in that they have to refill their stock. And you know, you, you still have this deficit, uh, which is expanding with enrichment uh, issues and some other problems. And then you also have this uh, Sprott Physical Uranium Trust entity, which which we're long, which continues to uh, issue shares and purchase pounds. And I think you have this, uh, you know, perfect situation where. Um, pounds keep disappearing and one day the price will start going. And I think when the price goes above 60, which is where it peaked out at during uh, the, the Russian invasion, uh, this time last year, you know, a lot of chart guys will say, hey, wait a second, you know, all this stuff cuppy has been saying for a year and a half, like it, it's working now, you know? And people have heard uh, uranium assholes for a decade talking about a deficit. And like you know, before 2018, there wasn't even a deficit, but yeah. people have heard it, everyone knows the thesis. And if it starts going up, I think people will chase. And look, uh, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust is roughly $3 billion. It's a tiny little entity. If one or two hedge funds want to buy $100 million worth, which isn't really that much, it's 2 million pounds of uranium, I think it's gonna dramatically change the price. Mm-hmm. And once it gets above 60, you know, you, you get that reflexiveness of, hey, it's working, let's buy some. It's going up, that means it's working, let's buy some. And then it gets to a higher price and retail says oh let's let's go uh front run the utilities and you know it's kind of how you had gamestop go from three dollars to 500 or whatever it went you know it, it it started going up and then everyone said let, let, let's go squeeze these guys let's front run these guys and you know guys who had never heard of gamestop started buying and I, I think the same happens with uranium guys who've never heard of uranium say Oh, this utility needs to buy some. Well, let's get in front of them. It's yep. it's, it's the natural it's a law of the jungle when you look at um, commodities. Where if you know someone needs it, you, know, you get in front of them. Yeah. I, I I think it's going to work. It has been working. Um, I, I think you know it's going to work soonish. I, I just don't know if it's going to work you know tomorrow or next year. Yeah. But when it does start working, I think it, it'll uh, exponentially work.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm still waiting for Kathy Wood to do a uranium ETF. Just waiting for that moment. It's common. <laughs> well, Copy, this has been an awesome conversation, man. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad we we got to have it. Uh, I do want to come down to Puerto Rico and help you with your farm. That is something that I want to do. Um, Free manual labor.
1: I'm in. Yes. <laughs> when do you want to yeah, come.
0: <laughs> yep. As long as as long as I get some papaya and whatever else fruit and stuff you got grown over there, um, I'll help you find the cow but uh where can where can where can people go to find you i know you're on twitter you've got adventures in capitalism you write um a little bit more frequently actually uh now and maybe that's a reflection of just not doing much in the markets but uh where can where can people go to find you
1: i'll go to adventures in capitalism and sign up uh you know i I write when i have something to say it kind of goes in cycles where i write a bunch and then you know kind of disappear for a month or two um You know, go find me at at hcuppy on Twitter. And then uh, we publish uh, Ketum, uh, which is uh, where we're keeping track of event-driven strategies. We're tracking about 25 uh, uh, corporate events. We also post uh, macro notes every week. Uh, You know, take a free trial. I I really don't think you'll be able to trade without it. I mean, it was built by us because we wanted the data. So it's built by a hedge fund effectively to produce data. And I'm happy that someone else is paying for my analysts. But uh, please take a free trial and... I think I think it'll change what you're doing. uh dot but that's how you find me.
0: There you go. I remember it was like, Kenham's what three years old, two two, two years, years old, three years old. old, year and a
1: half. It's two years old, a year and a half behind a paywall. Uh, it's become a nice little business, which is uh, surprising actually, because we just thought we were gonna help subsidize our uh, research budget. But but along the way, you know, we've we've hired some people and really I think uh, made the product a lot better.
0: Yeah, I mean I remember when, when 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 it first launched, we were kind of you know workshopping different different ways of, of 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 how to present it and and you know it was it was much smaller than it was today and you've added a Discord channel, you've added all this stuff. So it's it's been awesome to see kind of the growth of that. So um yeah, definitely, definitely go check that out. But uh awesome, awesome as always, cuppy. Um enjoy nice. enjoy surfing and farming and I'm sure we'll do this again soon.
1: Yeah, let's do this again too soon. It's been too long, and you're always welcome down here. I got an extra bedroom.
0: Awesome. That's all I needed to hear.